0: Welcome to Office Hours. If you want to find out more about what we do here at Office Hours, you can go to officehours.global. Our first hour is general conversation. Our second hour, we pick a topic to spend a little bit more time on. And today, we're going to talk about what we want to talk about in future Saturdays. Um, We've we've got representatives of both our education and accessibility panels here, and we're going to have a good discussion about what else needs to happen. But right now, let's jump into our questions. Ms. Joel, what's our first
1: question? Thank you, Laura. First question coming to us from Talalik Lopez Waterman in Macon, Georgia now. Um, It was amazing to see that the FDNY, which is the Fire Department New York, is using drones for firefighting operations on a recent crane fire in Manhattan. Do fire and law enforcement groups have to work under the same FAA rules for drones? Alex, Yeah, they they still have
2: uh, regulations that they need to operate under, but they're not the same as ours. The National Fire Protection Agency or the National Fire Protection Association uh, has what they call the public safety drone program. And so there is a different set of rules and uh, a tight set of uh, drones that they're allowed to use um, to make that actually happen. So it's they do have regulations and they do have guidelines and training and certification to use those drones, uh, but it's not the same as the general FAA rules.
1: Next question. From Rick Combs in Columbia, Tennessee. Someone from Google showed up at our church yesterday and was offering to do a 3D scan of our interior buildings and and also use the Google car for our outdoor campus. What are the panel's thoughts?
0: John, Snyder?
3: I think it's a great idea. And what it will allow you to do is have your building and layout on Google Maps so that your guests can find exactly where they need to go a lot easier, especially if you offer something like a midweek service in a random classroom. It can be very difficult for guests to find their way around a building and having a scan of it on the internet will help them find that.
4: Yeah. (laughs) So my thinking is it depends on what the church wants. They want, you know, it's a great church. People want to come to it. You want to make yourself known or you prefer to be more private. Uh, I would, if it was my building, I would have Google come. Um, like, you know, I want people in there to look at it and to see what we do and everything. But for other, other things, it depends on maybe people's secrecy or privacy if they want. It just, it depends on how well you want to be known. Alex, you
2: have something to add? Yeah, a lot of a lot of organizations, especially public ones, um, will not have people not have Google scan their area if it's you know anything that's not absolutely public. So, so they you know it would be pretty common. They might want to go into the main area there but they probably wouldn't, uh, want you to go anywhere else. Um, so, so that's a, you know, like a store or everything else. Um, so they, you know, that's probably all Google wants to do is let you walk into those, into the main area. So I don't think that, but I wouldn't even go up or down or to the side. You walk in the main door, you get into the, into the, you know, into the main sanctuary and that's all I would have them scan. Um, and, and most, most would consider that I do agree with, with everyone before that, it's a great way for people to get introduced to what you have. So I think it's a good idea to have it scanned. It's just that you just don't want to allow people to plan. You know, like, so, so, you know, you know, so you just, you just want to make sure that you're not um, providing too much information.
0: Absolutely. From a securities perspective, that makes so much sense, Alex. Thank you. Next question.
1: Next question from John Fultzen, Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania, Due to MS, multiple sclerosis, my sister can only provide input devices with her voice. I've set up several devices, but I would love to hear suggestions about which software and hardware devices work better for folks like this. Thanks. Alex? Alex? Uh, I think that Apple probably, as far as a hardware
2: platform uh, across iOS and macOS and, and other things, probably um, has the best solutions um, that are connected to it right now. Uh, they, um, Apple spends a lot of time and energy uh, making sure that their devices, um, especially for voice activation, although voice activation has gotten much better over long things. The other thing to look at is Amazon's um, uh some a lot of amazons tools there are skills that you can give to your um to your amazon voice activated um you know so the i don't, know, I don't want to say the word but, but the 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 control device um uh so and you can build skills for it with a web interface. So you can say, I want you to do this when I say this, you can type it in and have it all there and then it will, it will, it will take on those things. Now that can be done with Apple shortcuts as well. Skills is another way to do that. Um, But you can really build some complex operations um, inside of both of those. I've I've had a lot of success with with both of those platforms.
0: Yeah, and uh, Google's is getting much better as well. Mandy, you wanted to add something?
4: Yes, uh, plus one to what Alex said about the Apple devices such as the iPad, iPhone, voice control is one of those accessibility features that is built in. And what is also helpful there that I have found is that if that's putting a lot of strain on the person's voice and they may need a break from using their voice, uh, you can even add something like switch control into the mix to control the device if um, dexterity is not an issue, or if dexterity is an issue of doing gestures on the screen, that will actually minimize. Uh, you just have to push a button, and there are varying kinds of switches that can be used for a jaw switch or a a button.
1: Mitchell, I've used most of the uh, uh, the main players out there, and I sort of settled on Google. The only problem I have is I have multiple Google devices around my apartment. And for some reason, uh, when I'm talking somewhere downstairs, the upstairs Google responds. I can't figure that out. But the the good news is one of them will catch it. And uh, if I make a command, it's amazing how softly you can speak. And these things are listening and responding well. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I have had, I, I, I'm primarily a Google, Google user when it comes to voice activated. And yes, I do understand what you mean about you say something, I'm in a small apartment, but you say one thing and your phone's next to you and the thing across the room actually answers. I've had that, I've had that experience myself. Um, Let's go
1: to our next question. From Burkhard Friedrich in Easterberg, Germany, looking for a cabled solution when connecting Mac audio out as a microphone in on my iPhone 14. What's to consider? Alex? I think Mitchell was before me. I, I, can, I see it. Yeah. Mitchell? <laughs> Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like the iRig devices. They have so many different ones, uh, including a USB input uh, that allow you to uh, use that. And they're inexpensive and simple to operate. So uh, my vote, go to the iRig website, and find which one of the many they have would work best for you. Go ahead, Alex. There are uh, quite a few options.
2: So you just have to decide how professional you want the connection to be. So um, at the base, you, can, <clears throat> you, you probably will not be able to do a headphone out um, of the so, if you have the the first temptation you'll have is to take the lightning to headset adapter and get a um, TRS for your um, for your your computer and plug that into the TRRS of the laptop. But the impedance is different, <laughs> so or not the impedance, but the the voltage is different. Um, they're not built for the same thing and it won't work. I mean, it won't, it'll come in very, it should, I would expect it to come in very overmodulated. Um, so taking something, uh, the iRig that, that um, uh, Mitchell talked about, you could also take something that is um, uh, the, and you may be able to get that to work, by the way, if with the headphone to there, if you turn it way, way down, but it's probably not going to work well. Um, the, the main thing is you want to figure out how to get, again, if you want to tr- go up a little bit, you would get something that is going to take an XLR in and something that'll do an XLR out of the computer. So that can be a pod DI um, out of your computer. Um, it's a little box that'll take the headphone jack out and turn it into XLR. Um, and then you're going to plug it into some little adapter. iRig has has those adapters that can, um, in fact, you can take an iRig cable and plug it probably into that output and, and push it into the computer. And there's a couple different ones, but you're looking then for an XLR to headphone jack, um, which are sold on Amazon for you know, not very much money. So you can, you can actually make that, that, that work. Um, so having a little bit more control on the output there, but I, but a pod DI is probably what you're looking for, the easiest way out. Now, the really complicated way to do it is to get a really proper XLR to, I mean, USB to XLR output. Um, I use a, a very expensive uh, X, USB 2, uh, USB pre 2 is <laughs> how I get XLR out of my, out of my uh, computers and then you do an XLR back in um, to, to that, and, and that would work well. So, so you just have to decide, um, you know, how complicated you, you, you want to make it.
0: Next question.
1: From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul wants to know, and have you discussed presenter overlay effects in Mac OS Sonoma? And there's a link to it there.
0: John Snyder.
3: Yeah, the presenter overlay effects in Mac are a new feature that allow you to combine your video feed with whatever you're presenting on screen. Specifically, it's designed for things like Keynote, so that you can have a cutout of yourself overlaid on top of your Keynote presentation. Microsoft's had a similar thing for Microsoft Teams for a bit more than a year now, and what I've noticed with people who use it is it's very distracting. So unless you have a really good key around the person, so it doesn't... Um, Cut them off in weird geometric shapes um, and unless you design your content to fit around where your body is going to be on the screen, it can be really distracting for people. So just make sure you're designing your presentation or whatever you're sharing with that in mind. Your content should match your delivery and so make sure that you your body is not blocking off some important aspect of your slides especially. So um, otherwise it's even more distracting for your users. Alex. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, the
2: what what I always ask people is how often outside of the weather do you see people use the person kind of cut out over top of the news or over top of of, of and the answer is almost never. <laughs> so so it's um I think that as a design it's not something that I I I I use very often. I'd much rather do what we would call a picture in picture so that's me, you know, smaller in a corner or up to the side or popping in as part of the design. I think it, it's more pleasing to look at um, than, and, and actually I think that people who watch broadcasts are more used to it. Um, I think that I agree with John that the, the real problem with uh, a lot of these is that unless your green screen is very, very good, your edges will roll. So your edges will, you'll see the edges moving all the time. And, uh, that creates cognitive load on the, on the, on the other, on, on the far end. We're constantly ignoring those things. Like we're not, we're actively ignoring them, um, you know, in our, in our mind and that take, that adds weight to what we do. So if, if, if we're, you know, so we're saying that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter. (laughs) So, uh, but, but it's, it is adding weight to what we're, what people are looking at and having a good video signal. that that is not something that isn't fully working, um, definitely improves people's experience of that process.
0: Yeah, and as well, kind of taking this from from a visual standpoint for a moment, those edges that Alex talked about for somebody who either um, has different types of visual impairments, I know with my nystagmus sometimes, I I can tell immediately if somebody's got a... um, image i mean now i've seen some really good i mean alex has seen some really good keyed images in this group but if i'm anywhere else immediately i can tell if it's if if it's a virtual background of some way shape or form and um i'm not even epileptic and i can't imagine with some of those edges um how some of the epileptics feel next question
1: from john snyder in Reno, nevada here on our panel I'm trying to pull the photo library off of an old Time Machine backup from a different Mac. Time Machine keeps uh, wanting to use the backup image from my current machine. How do I pull the content I need? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so John, can you explain a little bit more of the problem?
3: Yeah, so I have, I had an old Mac from five years ago and it had my main photos library on the hard drive and I have a time machine backup from that. <clears throat> I got rid of that machine when I upgraded to this Mac mini and I've just never gotten around to moving that photo library to this Mac mini and all my online backups, um, are either corrupted or broken <laughs> or something. And so I have some old hard drives I'm, I'm going to try pulling from next. But what I try doing is just going into Time Machine to the, I have a Time Machine backup on a NAS and just pulling up that old Mac's Time Machine. I just can't seem to get the Time Machine app to connect to that Mac. And I can't seem, you can't just like double click on a Time Machine bundle to see what's inside of it. So I'm just trying to figure out, is there a way to see just that one folder and just pull one item over to a different machine? Yeah, you, you have just outlined
2: uh, why I, I never use Time Sheep. <laughs> so, um, you know, I I uh, always want to have my files somewhere that are not in something that I can't, you know, that, that are wrapped into something that I can't get to with a general file. And I've had the same problem with Drobos, where the Drobo is, you know, I thought that they were great when I got into them, but they are, you know, some of them are close to failing and they are very slow and um Almost all the files are somewhere else, but there's been a handful of them I've been surprised to find there, and um, and it's but it's wrapped in something where if the Drobo dies, there's no way to get it out, you know, you know, and so I think that uh, I think that I've I, I've moved very carefully over to things that um, generally are easy to to unwrap if I need to, but I don't I don't have an answer because I don't I the the time machine I have to admit I just. Uh, f- felt was dangerous when I saw it, (laughs) It, you know, outside of what, you know, what was there. Um, But you're outlining exactly the problem that I was afraid of. I've never seen it happen before, but I don't, I don't know enough about it. I was just curious if there was, if there was more to it, but yeah, it sounds like you, um, I would, yeah, I would, I I don't, I probably would take it to an Apple store, to be honest. (laughs) That doesn't (laughs) sound
3: promising. I have an, I have an extra Mac. I can restore the whole Mac from the time machine oh, image? Oh, well, then I would definitely do that. Which is, I think, <laughs> what I have to do. I was yeah. hoping for something faster.
2: No, no, I would definitely... If you if you can get it off there, I would restore the whole thing and then pull all the files that you need and then, and then be done with it, yeah.
0: Next question.
1: From Douglas Carmichael, the U.S. Senate passed the AM for Every Vehicle Act to force automakers to include AM radio reception in cars. Considering the changing media and public safety landscape... Do you think this is appropriate?
0: John Snyder?
3: I absolutely do. I've gone traveling outside of the state three times this year, and three times this year I've needed to listen to AM radio to see what was going on around me because I just didn't even know where to look for local news.
0: Mitchell?
1: Uh, my opinion differs slightly. I mean, what's next? They're going to mandate that we get a track players back in our cars um, AM used to be the king of the airwaves. It no longer is. It's not the first choice uh, that people have. And I don't think it's because AM may or may not be in your car. I think it's just an old technology that needs to be uh, uh, updated somehow, maybe making it all digital. And I think they're considering that. Um, I just think that to, to go to the lowest common denominator as far as your communication method um, isn't going to fix it. I think uh, FM, HD, um you know, streaming, those things make much more sense because that's where most people are residing.
0: Alex?
2: Yeah, I'll argue we just haven't built the infrastructure to move, so I don't necessarily disagree with either John or or Mitchell, but I think that we have not built the infrastructure that is necessary to um, to, to make the move. So we have to figure out what are we doing with those radio stations? Um, what are we doing? That's an ecosystem that is important because it provides content that, as John said, Is not available anywhere else whether it's talk radio or news radio those are things that are still that's an ecosystem that we don't necessarily want to kill off Um, and we haven't built the infrastructure to move them move those stations that that service um, to everything so i would say that until whatever we have that's new is moved over and that ecosystem is available in every you know 90 95 of the cars out there we can't turn that one off, you know, like, you know, we can't just, just wipe out the last bit of local news and local discussion and so on and so forth. Um, you know, without having those stations have to be available in your car. So there's a, there's digital, um, you know, digital opportunities there. Um, there could be much higher audio quality and, and other things, but that has to be installed in the cars over a decade before you can turn off what people have now, you know. So I think that that's really the challenge um, is is not losing that entire um, ecosystem without that. I also think that the FCC needs to start reimbursing people for um, offset, you know, making decisions that make things obsolete. So um, the FCC, you know, sells band, you know, sells their their wavelengths, um, and then just let everybody deal with it, you know. And I have to admit that. That was thousands of dollars of of cost to me. So I'm very particular about it, which is when they changed the wireless spectrum, a lot of my very expensive transmitters became obsolete. And I think I should be reimbursed for that. (laughs) You know, like, you know, they they got paid for that. They got paid for changing those wavelengths. Um, So the FCC made billions and they basically just did it at the cost of probably hundreds of millions at least. Um, of, of average people. And so I think that you have a lot of investment in AM. You have a lot of people who have, you know, have a businesses that are, that work around it, like local business, that's the only real place to advertise outside of Facebook, you know? And so, so the, um, so they, it's really, really important ecosystem, not just for the content, but for the whole ecosystem of, of um, uh, local business. And so I I don't think that we should, uh, I, I think that we should be very, very careful of removing it.
0: Yes, um, Alex. Quick question before we before we move to John, which is which goes further? Does AM or FM actually go further AM. and more useful in an emergency?
2: Uh, AM AM is AM will travel further, especially at night. <laughs> so it, it depends on what what time what what time of day. But AM will generally travel uh, further than, than than FM,
3: and then and then of course the longest is shortwave. Go
0: ahead, John.
3: Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering because the way my main use case for this is, I'm driving usually through mountains, and I need to understand what's happening on the roads. How does the government make any sort of emergency notifications accessible for those, especially who aren't able to hear the radio? Uh, I
2: actually. I don't think they, they have to. They have to get. They have to hear. You have to have those emergency. You have to have radio to get it. You know, to get the. You know, it's put across everything now. Some of the emergency, like amber alerts, go across every cell phone. You know, um, which is crazy. I was at—I was recently had an Amber Alert go off when we were in North Carolina, and there's 20 people in the room, and suddenly the whole the whole room lit up. You know, on an Amber Alert, which I think is great. I think that's that's a really great service.
0: Brendan, you wanted to weigh in on this?
5: Yes, that's exactly the point. Um, accessibility, and so thank you. Um, I think that if the government makes a large investment of money for that sort of thing, Um, if they're talking about what they're going to do with AM frequency, they have to figure out, you know, how would you figure out to do, you know, captioning? Or how would you make that investment, you know, accessible to everyone? How would you improve the technology? So, you know, I know there's a lot of talk shows, um, talk radio on AM frequencies, but, you know, that's, you know, this is new technology. So it's an opportunity, right, to add, you know, better, more advanced technology, instead of just, AM is only accessible for hearing people. Um, to your point, what do the people do that can't hear that information, that
0: emergency information? So thank you. Absolutely. And that's the power of the conversations we're having here. Mitchell, you wanted to come back in on this?
1: Uh, yeah, just one other thing. And if the government's listening, I'm, I'm hoping that they'll take my advice, is that uh, to in- encourage uh, car dealerships or cars manufacturers Uh, to keep AM radio in the cars, they're sort of building on a bad structure. I think that the FCC would be better uh, uh, to suggest an improved version of AM and then use that as the uh, thing that people should uh, place in their cars. The problem with AM now is it's based on old technology. Um, Yes, it does uh, have uh, the ability to go farther, but there's a lot more things out there. If you've ever turned your AM radio on now, Every little power supply, fluorescent light, uh, wireless device is making lots of noise, sort of like when you hear a thunderstorm approaching, you hear, it, hear the static on the AM radio. It makes it very hard uh, to use it as a medium for communication. If they go all digital, that would be a good use of the FCC's time uh, and the government's time to make that transition and then make sure they put AM digital in every car that's out there.
0: Alex, you want to finish us
1: up on this? Yeah, I completely agree
2: with Mitchell that we need to move forward. I'm just saying that we need to move. We need to fix it first, <laughs> then we can move forward. <laughs> so we can't, you know, we can't just go, we're just going to throw, throw it into the, into the river. <laughs> so so we, it's a huge ecosystem um, and that would destabilize many things that, that I don't think we see on the surface. So the government just has to actually um, uh, be logistical about it and, ha- and have the replacement completely in place before they remove the old the old thing. And that's, that's all I'm saying. But I do agree with Mitchell. It'd be great to move forward. They've been talking about moving. I used to work at our AM station and they've been talking about moving AM to digital and there's technically a digital form platform for that. Um, and so the car manufacturers and everyone else just needs to, they need to update. And that takes a decade. Like it's a decade of, of saying, this is the new format. And every, What they need to do is say, this is to Mitchell's point, The regulation needs to be like, we're going to, all the radios have to have this in them. Now, the problem really is, is that the consumer has, I mean, I turn on the radio once a month, maybe, maybe once a year. Like, I don't, like, I get in and immediately snap my, my phone to it. So it is an issue that, that is, may, may solve itself, not so much with radios in the cars, but just that no one's using the radios anymore. So that's, that's a, that's the other, the other half of this.
0: Yes, and a great discussion. I want to remind our producers that you can ask questions for either hour now and then um, vote on those questions because the questions that get the most votes are what we will spend the most time on. Next question.
1: From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, what are some usable Bluetooth keyboards, for example, Artec, Logitech, with trackpads for smart TVs. For example, Amazon TV, Samsung, LG, etc., particularly for watching and navigating YouTube videos. I get tired of typing with my remote. My K830 is a letdown.
0: Go ahead, Brendan. Yes,
5: that's a great question. I was wanted to make sure I was the first one to answer that. So I've used lots of different types of keyboard over the years. And uh, as a tech person, you know, I tend to play with lots of different um, smaller types of PC, TV connectivity type of equipment. And I have played a lot around with that for quite some time. But, um, but anyway, so, the, you know, there are a couple different things. If you look at the K... The Kodai, K-O-D-O-I, that player also, there are lots of different things that you can install that you can use. But I think right now, things are streaming. But typically, um, I know that um, you know I have the same issue, right? I've got this keyboard that I use, um, and this is the one, and this is the type, and it's got the pad, like you said, on the side. And I I don't really use that very often. I just, I find like it it doesn't work very well with the cursor. Um, So I actually like this one a little bit better. This one doesn't have that trackpad, but it's a K3-8, or excuse me, yeah, K3-8. Um, and so I do have, I have a separate mouse that I use because I really don't like that trackpad. Um, you know, I think it's easier Um, I think it works a little bit better, has more power. Um, So if you're willing to have two pieces of equipment to do the same thing, then that's a thought. Um, I think before, you know, we were using something like this and trying to do this with a remote control. Um, Some remote controls do have the keypad setup where you can do that as opposed to like the traditional keypad on a a remote control. So I think that's a little easier. So there's another idea that you can do. They do have those out there.
1: Um,
0: So there's a couple different options. Thank you. Um, Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael, normally disability equipment like wheelchairs travels with the passenger, but could the equipment for a athlete with disabilities or a sports team, for example, travel with a Carnet?
0: First, um, there's a lot of problems with the idea that in air travels that the wheelchair travels with the person um, that's a whole thing but um, for, the, for the for the Paralympic teams um, this could be an interesting discussion Alex what do you think
2: uh, for larger teams this is managed by, by someone who probably is managing it with a carnet uh, you can send you can protect anything with a carnet I think we we had a uh, Boomerang in here yesterday, and they said that that the smallest thing that they had seen someone carnage was a fire extinguisher for twenty dollars. So, so they, so anything can can be um for travel. I think that generally um, you're you're not going to be for the average person, they're not going to be um, encumbered by uh, this. It would be considered a personal effect. It's not they're not. As worried that someone's going to bring one, unless you bring lots of them. Um, and then the other uh, thing is, generally, if you're a team, uh, you will um, you will have a uh, someone working on that lo- those logistics, and so it it it, it wouldn't necessarily uh, be something that would affect you directly.
0: And quite often, when they move sports teams like that around, they've got months and months and months of planning into it, and
2: uh, yeah, I mean, also. It- for, for, uh, for most people who are doing stuff, there are freight forwarders or shippers that will manage this for you. We mentioned it in passing, uh, yesterday, uh, we use a company called Rocket. Um, and, uh, and that is the, the kind of the state of the art, you know, it's not the cheapest version, but it is a, um, but that's the, you know, but a lot of companies use companies like that, like Rocket, um, to move their gear around that way. Someone just shows up. They put it in your car. It goes away. It shows up on a pallet somewhere, um, and amazingly, it will show up on time. I've had, um, a, you know, four or five pallets be delivered in three feet of snow in Davos uh, to the minute. <laughs> so, so it's nice. um, those. It's nice. not just that they manage the 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 um, the process. They they are very precise on time. Yeah, Brendan.
4: Yeah, I, I I see. I have a couple of things too. So like disability work and discussion, I know we're going to talk about it too. Um, And people have complained often about like wheelchairs being broken on airplanes. So it's like, how do they improve that airplane experience? And like, they get broken when they go down into storage and everything and they arrive and the wheelchairs, they're stuck without their high-powered wheelchair. So that's the only thing they have. So that's an interesting point. And I, you know, I maybe that's something... You know, we've had those experiences of people getting their wheelchair broken. So maybe, like, it might be a discussion for using like that service, the Carnet service. Uh, Something someone who's more careful with equipment, like these guys, obviously are. That way, maybe there's specific disability equipment that a Carnet could do, and and that way they don't have to have it fixed or anything um, when they go to the airport.
0: Lex, can you correct me? But there's a difference between. Carnet and the freight forwarder like rock.
2: Yeah, Am I the, wrong
0: about that? Can you give me yeah. that a little bit for us?
2: Yeah, the, the Carnet is simply a, is, is simply paperwork that ensures that it proved for import and export that you're not um, managing that. So the Carnet is just a piece of paper that says, I'm not leaving this equipment in this country. Whereas a, you know, a freight service will is moving that stuff. Now Freight Service will use the Carnet to say that they're not doing that. Um, but they uh, but the Carnet itself is just a piece of
1: paper.
0: Thank you. I, I thought maybe those terms were getting used interchangeably.
1: Let's go to the next question. From Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Andy asks, cellular service, which provider do you find optimizes price and performance living in the US but traveling for Europe, European and Canadian gigs? Personal mobile access inquiry, uh, not necessarily live streaming. Thanks.
0: Go ahead, Alex.
1: Yeah, so...
2: Uh, T-Mobile is the best across around the world as far as accessibility to different networks. And so in almost every country, when you, uh, when you go into that country, you'll get some service. It's not great service, but it's some service um, in almost every country that I've gone to in the world. I've gone to about 60 of them. And, and so the, the, um, so T-Mobile almost always works. It's not super fast, it's barely usable in those countries, but it's better than nothing um, so so as far as getting texts and basic emails and that type of thing, it's really, really useful. Um, the best way to go when you go into another country though is generally to get a rentable system that you can use. So for instance, this one is uh, this is a I haven't used this one. I was actually giving this as an example to somebody only yesterday. Um, this is called hip uh, the hippo or hip pocket. Um, I've used ones like this in Japan. And what this does is you just, it's a Wi-Fi access point um, that you can rent per day or, or per week or per month that you just put in your backpack or you put in your pocket. And it now gives you, now it's not a cellular connection. You, can't make, you can make phone calls with FaceTime or Messenger or, or those types of things, but you, you can't make a, a regular cell, cellular call. But oftentimes, these are very fast. They're 100 megs a second. I mean, they're very, they're, they're, they very—they're—they tend to be very good um, services. And uh, then you just, you'll, you'll, you're using their cellular. It's very hard to get, um, I don't know, it's very hard, but it's, I found it to be very challenging to get short-term SIMs in other countries. Um, there are some countries that, especially in Africa, that it's actually not that hard where you can get those SIMs and you can prepay them, um, and then you just swap them out on your phone. Um, but once you get to Europe or Asia, a lot of times those are not as uh, readily available and they want you to be in a long-term contract. Um, so prepaid SIMs are one, way to, are one way to solve that and just swap the SIM when you get to the country. Then you also have a local phone number for people that are there. Um, when you have two SIMs, which a lot of phones now have, you can have both both of those um, available to you. A lot of times I generally have more than one phone uh, with me. So I, I usually put one of them on a local SIM, um, but you have to do prepaid. Um, you can't do a regular one. And usually the performance on the prepaid ones aren't as good. So they're good for giving people a local phone number to call you or text you. They're not great for anything that takes more, more work. If you really want performance to do video streaming or to do Zooms or other things, then you really want to look at one of these portable Wi-Fi uh, hotspots. Um, Go
3: ahead,
4: Brendan. Yeah. I just want to throw it out there. I, again, talking about T-Mobile, I have T-Mobile and I think it works pretty well. And and a good thing, I know I went to Europe in gosh, 92 and really didn't have any cell phones that time. And so how would we get along? You know, what did we have to do is, it you know, compared to what we have today, we have so much service worldwide, which is great. But for myself, I'm very dependent on speed. So that's a thing you have to look for. If you can look somewhere to see if you have, uh, look before you go research, because I'm using it for sign. So I want like a VRS system or something like that. So you have to, you know, can you call even like a VRS service, a video relay interpreter service in a different country? You just, just something to think about about speed and, and research before you go.
0: Albert, you you you've uh, are you still overseas?
6: Uh yeah, I'm still overseas. Uh, I'm in South Korea right now, and uh, that's a so it's very relevant question. Uh, I was actually looking up how how to figure that out uh, while I'm staying in Korea. How am I gonna make calls and things like that? And I use T Mobile T Mobile as well, um, and. For T-Mobile, if you download the T-Mobile app uh, on mobile on on, on the phone, um, you you can go to the settings and disable the data roaming um, and and the uh, any you can there's a, a setting to disable data roaming and call roamings right so uh, separately uh, so you can either get data only but no calls. Uh, or call only but no data uh, things like that. And I do know that if you actually stay, um, if you do the data roaming and then stay outside of the United States for longer than thirty days, and you keep using the data there, then I heard uh, uh, the when I was talking to the um, the customer service agent, they were saying that uh, uh, they will block the the plan because it's it, the they uh, because they think that you are using the data. Overseas, way too long. Uh, you know, I, apparently that's the policy. So, um, what I usually do is I don't. I actually disable the data streaming, uh, data roaming, and um, uh, and and I just turn on. I, I just connect to Wi-Fi, um, and after connecting Wi-Fi, I connect to v, uh, I, I use VPN to connect uh, connect to the US uh, uh, US location a server and that allows me to make a Wi-Fi calling. Um so it's a it's a calling through the Wi-Fi. Uh you, so I don't get any kind of you know uh international charges, call, phone call charges. And um uh and and it shows in the Wi-Fi that I because I'm going through the server of the US, it shows that I'm in the United States. So I don't get any international charges. Um but also T-Mobile has a really good plan for, for South Korea, for example. Um, as soon as I arrived at the airport, T-Mobile found a, uh, data connection. Um, I think T-Mobile signs, uh, has a partnerships with the uh, different countries, te- uh, telecommunication, uh, companies. And then, um, once you arrive there and then you turn the data, um, cell phone services, then you just, Get automatically connected to one of that com- uh, country's partnered uh, companies to T Mobile. So I was connected to uh, SK Telecom, which is a, a partner company um, to T Mobile, and I was able to use data. Uh, I think for me, I was allowed five gigabytes, um, and that was pretty uh, good enough uh, for me. Um, and then for, for the first day, um, I do also know that there are other options like Google Fi. Um, Google Fi is a also popular option. Um, you can make a local uh, phone numbers for different countries. Um, I do know, I, I, I did also look up uh, Starlink by uh, Elon Musk. Um, so uh, that one is really popular, I think, especially for um, digital nomads or people who uh, have a van life. So, you know, like a uh, they get a satellite um uh, dish and then it connects to the Starlink uh, uh Wi-Fi and uh it's it doesn't cover uh everywhere in the world yet uh, as far as I know, but it actually covers pretty a lot of uh different places when I checked, um including uh South Korea, uh a- some Asian countries. Um and I do I do hope that that actually kind of like a uh, becomes more popular so that um you know everyone has internet connection uh whether they are in the rural areas uh or um uh, a- a- any regions um and also we talked about uh, like physical SIMs, but i i i wanted to add to that because my phone is iphone fourteen uh and i think from iphone fourteen um there's a uh it 's a e eSIM eSIM cards. So um, you don't actually have the physical SIM cards and the slot that you you can put in the E-SIM, uh the SIM SIM card uh, it's 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 not uh it doesn't get opened up. So um it's locked. So you can you cannot use physical SIMs for that, but um so but good thing is that you can uh, go to the settings and then um register a esim so you just need to buy the esim from that count, the, the country that you're visiting um you know if there's a like a prepaid card a prepaid uh, esim that you can uh, purchase that and then you just need to scan it with the you know like they give you a uh, like a uh, qr code and then you scan it and then iphone automatically registers it and it basically stores two sim cards right for me one united states and then one south korea so I use two phone numbers in one phone. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so and, and you can and I disable the data for the United States phone number. Um, but I do get the text messages whenever I connect to Wi-Fi, uh, everything. Um, oh, actually, as far as I know, in for T-Mobile, depending on different plans, but as far as I know, text messages are free. Um, And another uh, interesting thing is iPhones, um, if you use FaceTime uh, between iPhones, even if they are uh, living abroad, as far as I know, it's free. Uh, FaceTime video call or audio calls, uh, it's free between iPhones, even if uh, people uh, live abroad or, you know. Um, And text message is the same. Uh, Between iPhones, I think it's uh, free. And uh, uh, an iPhone actually shows by color of the text message uh whether it's green or blue so blue is um it's free right like uh, it's a, between iPhones uh through the apple network but uh green is a charged right message um so it, it's, it means that it's not a it's not an uh iPhone network right um things like that so i mean i know that there's a lot of advancements and things like that but you know being a digital nomad right now I have a huge empathy and uh, I feel so much um, frustration uh, for these kind of things, like in, including phone phone call services or bank, right? But international banking, um, uh, as well as tax or labor law, right? All these things uh, to navigate and it's uh, uh, a lot to navigate. But anyways, yeah.
0: Alex you wanted
2: to add something? Yeah, and I just wanted to correct one thing that the, the T- T-Mobile is fine in the United States. If you have a US signal, it's fine in the United States. It's just that when you get overseas, they give you a signal with a partnership that was mentioned earlier with many, many cities, but that connection is not particularly good. <laughs> So, um, you know, so it, it's there as it's serviceable, but not great. Um, and again, I would highly recommend looking at, especially if you're going to be somewhere for a week is looking at these portable mu- mu- Wi-Fi's because you just connect over Wi-Fi and you carry it around and you don't have to worry about the other. The other thing to know is that all over the world, Starbucks has Wi-Fi and, and I, I have a, a little thing in the back of my head knowing I, I will remember where every Starbucks is as I go, not because I get their coffee. Which I do, but I don't get the coffee necessarily, but I know that I can go there to check my email <laughs> so, so i um so I always keep that in in my mind
0: Michael, you wanted to jump in here?
4: Yeah, I think uh, I wasn't thinking about that actually that question till now that you all mentioned it, um, so I also use t mobile. <laughs> And when I travel and I do travel a lot to different countries and I never really had any issues, but I just realized something is that I'm going on a cruise. Uh, I leave this Thursday for two weeks and, and, you know, a nice vacation. But then I just realized, huh, with your help, I guess (laughs) I know the cruise is only offering me 150 minutes worth of internet. And after that, you have to pay. So does anyone know if there's, for a cruise specific, is there something to work with my phone or would it work with my phone or do I have to rely on the cruise company, their their ships? I'm just trying to understand how that works on a cruise. Does anyone know or anyone can help me with that? And I just don't want to pay a lot of money. Alex?
2: Yeah, there's not a lot in. of infrastructure in cruises. <laughs> I think that that's part of the what people consider a feature is that they're hard to reach. You're hard to reach on on the cruise, and and you're disconnected from the rest of the world. Um, there are some very expensive plans that you can get on cruises, but but they're not. Uh, but it's usually an excuse for you to say, "I'm not available," <laughs> and then you can enjoy the cruise.
4: Albert.
6: Yeah, um, I think that's where. Starlink is actually pretty um uh excel, ex- excelling um so like a, they have a maritime plan so a lot of like ships or yachts or um you know they have a uh maritime plan uh, plan you can get the satellite for that for for uh, while you are on the ocean and then uh, um they uh connect you to uh, internet um i heard that it's pretty good um but it also depends on the weather conditional and, and, uh, where you are. Um, and, but I think, I think I heard that, uh, I also know that like, uh, cr- uh, cruise ships or container ships use this, uh, uh, Starlink a lot. Uh, so they have, uh, they give Wi-Fi to the, um, the crew in the, uh, in the ship. Uh, but I don't know about like a different cruise companies and how they use, uh, they, they connect the Wi-Fi, but, um, I just wanted to add this, uh, this to the conversation.
0: Thank you. Next question.
6: Vic Hernandez
1: from Springfield, Missouri room treatment to mitigate any potential audio issues that may be arising. What about a second hour on producing outdoor events with the best possible audio? This is helpful. Alex? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. So
2: we'll definitely put that in. We'll see if we can find uh, some good, whether it's outdoor or large events, uh, we'll see if we can't find someone to jump on the show and and talk about what it takes to get those
1: those speaker systems ready to go. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. It's winter here. Is there a recommended temperature that studio equipment should operate at? I know my guitars being made of wood respond to temp changes. What about audio video equipment?
0: Go
2: ahead, Alex. The audio and video equipment can actually
1: get pretty cold before it starts to.
2: Obviously, you don't want to go under freezing, but most audio equipment can get into the. Uh, we've operated audio. I mean, vid, uh, our audio video equipment in the forty degree range without uh, forty degree uh, Fahrenheit. Um, so um, degree range, um, so low teens or high singles in in Celsius, um, and so so we we definitely have have had that work fine. Um, uh, it, things with wood, like your equipment, uh, are more sensitive than the audio-video equipment is. Um, audio-video equipment is much more sensitive to uh, hot temperatures, and the only thing that you have to be careful about... Is going from hot to cold so the problem with audio video equipment is when you go hot to cold they'll form condensation on the electronics which can perform which can um, uh, cause shorts so you have to you if you're gonna go in and out um, you want to be thinking about desiccation um, and making sure that the that it's very very dry in the cases that they're in when they're moving from one temperature to another
0: Alex, you've said you use the you've actually saved the little gel packs that come in things and use that and put that in with like your camera lenses and
2: that. Yeah, I I I don't have it now, but I used to have a jar. Every time I got desiccation, I just throw the desiccators in a jar and keep them all together so that I could always throw them in things. Now, when we put it in equipment, you can buy big jars of desiccators and put them in these little things and stick them inside the equipment. And so there's and they're they're the the uh the desiccation tablets themselves are much larger, which is nice because they don't get into everything. <laughs> so, so they, um, and then you can take them, you can put them into something, dry it out, and you can actually bake them, um, put them in a, in a regular oven and bake them, and it'll take all the o- water out of it again, and they'll change color, and then you can use them again. So there's there's reu- reusable ones as well, but I, I figure I'm not going to, why well, throw away the desiccation when I can just uh, put it in, a, in somewhere and, and use it if I need to,
1: because we used to use it a lot.
0: Very good. Next question.
1: Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida, asked, YouTube just launched Multiview. Once it's more broadly available, how might a panel show like this utilize it?
0: Go ahead, John. Yeah, for those
3: of you not familiar, multi-view is the ability to see two different video feeds in the same window and, and really YouTube's doing this to help get into the sports market. That's a requirement for people who are really into sports is to be able to see two games at once. Since it's set at the viewer's side, I would think the only way we could really use it here in this community is maybe as a second year experience where you could have a keynote feed playing in one window and you can see everyone's reaction in the second. Alex. Yeah, I think this is particularly
2: useful for exactly what John talked about, which is watching multiple different things. It's very confusing in the article that they put because they kind of show basketball all the way through. I think it would have been clearer if they'd shown different things in each one of those because as separate streams, that makes sense. We've done a lot of testing with partners related to um multi-camera from a single show. So multiple cameras from one sports event. And we found that the drop-off after about five minutes back to program was dramatic. You know, so uh, over 90% of the viewers and sometimes 95% of the viewers will stop watching multi-view of a single game and go back to the curated program um, within, within 10 minutes, you know, because it's just too much work. They just want to sit and watch, watch the film. Um, and so we've seen Verizon do this, and a lot of others have, have made these multi-angles available, and no one actually really uses them.
0: Alex, would this be something that would be helpful? Like, we've talked about having two different languages of ASL offered at the same time, or, uh, of, of, of sign language. Could, we, the, could it be selectable? Like, uh, we could send yeah. it out to just the Office Hours page, and then it would be selectable?
2: It could be. I mean, I, I think that we'd have to look at it. I think this is for YouTube TV. I don't think this is for YouTube itself. Um, so uh, those are similar architectures, but not the same. So I don't same. know. I don't think that this feature is something that we're going to see on YouTube until it really solves itself inside of YouTube TV. It's, it solves a real problem for YouTube TV. It creates a lot of problems for YouTube because allowing everybody to do that is different than having um, it work within the, the verticals that, that they have there. So I, I think that it would be unlikely that they would make it uh, available. Maybe I could be wrong, though. I mean, I have no, no idea. Yep.
0: Thank you. Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael asking, Teradek offers a dedicated cellular data plan that is geared towards streaming. Would a plan like this have any advantages to a generic mobile virtual network operator or direct operator sold plan? Go
0: ahead, Alex.
2: Yeah, it's a lot simpler <laughs> to manage uh if you let somebody else do it. So we use a live view often and in that live view uh it has it they manage the data plan for us. Managing a lot of data flexibly over multiple locations um is something that is is not trivial. Um and even if you get if you especially for these um cellular cellular data that that Teradek is using for their bond solutions. Uh, they're bonded solutions. Um, Even if you, if you see like Verizon sees you using two or three SIMs um, in the same device, Verizon will oftentimes close those down. Um, So, so, or slow them down. And so you have to be, it's much, much easier to allow um, the service provider to do that. You can build it your own. We use peplinks and other things like that, but whether it's using uh, Keenan Campbell has disaster recovery, which will, will manages that bonded solution for you. Um, you can get it from uh, you know a variety of different services, but you want somebody else to manage that. It's really not, and it's not cost effective. You're paying per unit, and it's a pretty expensive way to to manage that.
0: Next question.
1: Peter Moore from Auckland, New Zealand. Asked, uh, I watched Apple TV's highlights. Of Lionel Messi's second game, where he scored two goals, Apple was using camera angles and the wired as in a camera on a wire that I'm used to seeing in cricket and American football, uh, but I've never seen in soccer before. Thoughts? Go ahead, Alex. It's nice when you have all the money. <laughs> so, so, so the uh,
2: so Apple's uh, going to keep on throwing uh, um, uh, production value at things that you probably haven't seen before. I think that. Uh, you're going to find that within two years, the MLS coverage is going to be better than whether, whether the MLS players are as good as the other players around the world, the coverage of MLS will be better than anything else uh, in the world. You know, so uh, I think that that's, that's what you can expect over the next couple of
1: years.
0: Next question.
1: John Fisher from Oklahoma city, Oklahoma has a question. Loading older Apple photo libraries on a Mac mini M2 Pro works fine, but processing and export of those 20,000 photos is lasting days without any error messages or not responding statuses. Should I keep waiting or try something new?
0: Ooh, good question. Um, Alex? Alex?
2: Yeah, I would do it in pieces. (laughs) That's a lot of, that's a lot of things to do all at one time. Um, Generally, if I, if I see something locking up like that, I will almost always go back to sections and grabbing sections at a time and first do one, then do a whole folder or do a group of them and then start systematically moving through them. I mean, it may still work and it may just take a long time to process, but I would, um, uh, and I'm curious about what you're processing as well. So, um, the question is: Are you going to an old old photo, are you going from iPhoto from photos and pulling a li- a photos library into another photos library? And especially if it's old, I would recommend. and I say this for someone who's had a very bad experience in this area. Um, do not import a photos a library into another photos library until you've exported the full res versions into a folder on their own. Um, I've had issues where photos. Uh, imported older photo iPhoto's libraries and all I got were the previews. (laughs) So I got, I got, I have small versions of certain things that I shot forever. Like it, it, because I just let it go after that. I thought it was all in there. I saw all the images when I rolled through them, but when I went to see the full resolution, they were not full resolution anymore. So, um, so I would recommend if you're ever going to import one photo, iPhoto library into another that you export full resolution out first.
0: Very good. Um, we're getting to the top of the hour. Alex, do you have a quick preview for us? Of- you know, I don't have that oh, handy. Up to see- okay. <laughs> I just
2: looked for uh, it. The email that I went asked- out today. The email that went out today um, uh, uh, didn't, didn't didn't have the new the new stuff. I just went to look for it, and either I didn't get the email or it didn't didn't get updated. So
1: I don't I don't have yeah, that. We but, probably do one but, more question um, quickly.
0: Yeah. Next question.
1: All right, Eric Curz is here from Hartford, Connecticut. If I plan to use Elemental Link for streaming, how can I send an output to Zoom? Alternatively, how can I convert SDI to a virtual camera source for Zoom? Alex? Yeah, there's a lot of tools that will do.
2: I mean, anything that will convert a, like a 12... Uh, you know, the 12G, the web presenter, um, even the SDI uh, ATEM minis will all convert the SDI to a what looks like a webcam. Um, Zoom is actually very robust at seeing um, other things like deck links and so on. So you can have small deck link card, um, a mini converter. Those are all things that that will convert the SDI into what looks like a camera available for Zoom. So you shouldn't have too much trouble with that, um, but you will; it will be a separate feed. The problem with the Elemental Link is that it's going to take a couple seconds to get to AWS and then a couple seconds to get out. So if you're using the Elemental Link as the delivery method for Zoom, you're going to notice that it's seconds behind. Now, if you're watching the stream, it doesn't matter but if you 're watching uh, if you 're trying to interact with it in any way it 's going to be very latent so um, so I think that that'd be the thing that i 'd that I'd concern about. So what I would do is take the original SDI signal and then put it into a computer. Remember that you need at least four cores uh, to to have uh, to be able to have a pc that will ingest that or any uh, any mac that's sold right now will um, be able to uh, produce a 1080p stream. The mac, the smaller PCs can do a 720p into YouTube um, from just a web, you know, from whatever in, inputs they have, but they but to get 1080p you need at least four cores on a PC or any or any mac that's or any mac that's made right now.
0: All right. Great hour everybody. Um I'm just going to hand it over to Tim to kind of lead our brainstorming discussion. I'm really excited about this.
7: All right. Thanks, Laura. So, uh, you know, we've really enjoyed uh, having some time to talk about accessibility the past few weeks. And uh, what we wanted to do today was just spend a little time brainstorming on what topics should we cover. Um, You know, in the past, we just sort of brought in um, who was available and who we had um, you know, kind of on the list, queued up. and, and of course we've we've uh, built a great set of panelists based on on those guests, and we're, we're so excited to have new folks that, that join us every week, Albert and Brendan and Michael, and, and of course the uh, the, the long time folks that have been here, Laura and Mandy and, um, and, and all of the others. But uh, you know, we just want to talk about what topics everybody is interested in and' uh, related to accessibility and just brainstorm a little bit. So we're going to take questions today and and um you know we'll we'll probably give some answers, but really we want to discuss these questions and see if these are things we should talk about on on future shows. So um so with that, let's uh let's get into some of these questions and just uh and see where this discussion goes and we'll take a lot of notes and and uh, you know see what we can build up for for future shows. So, uh, so Mitchell, let's go ahead into the first question here.
1: Thanks, Tim. Uh, the first uh, question comes to us from Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas, and here on our panel. The differences between IDEA, IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and the ADAA, Americans with Disability Amendments Act, in short, self-advocacy.
7: Yeah, and Laura, go ahead and start us off here.
0: This is... There is a um, graphic out there that I love that says idea IDEA equals success ADA equals access and I think sometimes our um, IEP and 504 students are shortchanged by our school system because they don't understand when they get out of K through 12 what advocacy looks like, what they how to how to articulate what necessarily what they need. And I, I could be wrong, this panel could be absolutely have a different opinion, which I'm absolutely happy to hear, but I think it would be a really good um, discussion about what those differences in in the way those things function are. Brendan, go ahead and chime in.
4: Yeah, that's a great discussion. I think there's many things. There's different perspectives on those two laws. Really, it's three, the IDA and then uh, the ADA and also the different the ADAA. So I think that's definitely something we can get into and we can have a great, robust discussion there. I'm an advocate myself. I, you know, I advocate for my own rights. And I, you know, I, I did that through all throughout all of high school.
7: Great, and um, you know, typically on Saturdays, for those that have been around a while, we uh, had education hours, and and uh, John Snyder here today, you know, has been a big part of that. And uh, you know, we're we're looking forward to to working on accessibility and education together. And we might even occasionally have an episode that that uh, crosses those two subject matters, and and uh, this would be a great, uh, you know, a, a great discussion there, right? To talk about. Um, the, the different acts and how that fits into education and people with disabilities inside and outside of education and the workplace so all right
1: let's go ahead to the next question and the next question is in from our host tim david who's traveling in winter garden florida what would it entail to have a deafblind panelist on office hours michael go ahead
4: okay Well, for office hours, uh, obviously we're through Zoom, we're using Zoom. If so, then the deaf blind person would need an interpreter with them physically. Uh, That's the only solution. Sometimes they would have to have two interpreters, one for pro-tactile, which is signing on the back and kind of showing what they're looking at, showing more of the atmosphere, what's the surroundings doing. And then someone signing tactically, which is signing over or under the person's hand to be saying what's what's being said. So that's the only solution. And I have seen it done on Zoom, but the interpreters have to be in the room.
7: Um, I'm at a conference this week, and uh, it's the Telecommunications for Deaf uh, TDI conference. And they, they did a panel this morning on uh, deaf blind. And uh, it, w- it was fascinating to watch and, you know, just, just see what was involved. And, of course, the, the panelists were amazing, you know, just hearing their experiences and, and uh, their content. And, uh, you know, I, I encourage everybody, if you ever get a chance to, you know, go to a, a disability conference and watch people with all disabilities, of course. But, um, uh, you know, with, when uh, someone has a dual sensory disability um, you know, the experience of just watching what they have to do to receive information, to convey information uh, is just a great learning experience for all of us. So,
1: all right, let's go ahead to the next question. I think uh, uh, Brendan Gilbert from Fort Worth, Texas has a question. Challenges of disabled people in attaining leadership positions due to accessibility, accommodations, or perception
3: issues. All right, John. I feel like accessibility in the workplace is almost a, a recurring theme that you could have multiple times throughout the year. I also would be really interested to hear a conversation on how um, do you be a great leader, in, especially if you are a leader with a disability and you have direct reports who, are, who don't have that? And how do you manage that relationship? Because I, I imagine it's incredibly challenging. Thanks, John. Um, let's go
7: over to Brendan.
4: So obviously, I wrote this and I asked it. Uh, the reason being is I noticed there are, so there's not enough leadership, people with disabilities who have leadership because we don't have, we want that to have that more. And like at the executive level or the CFO, CEO level, if it's a big company, they don't have people with disabilities. There might be a few people, one or two, but they're not. Uh, and and these are like significant disabilities for people who um you know we have at Microsoft we have a chief executive officer uh who has a disability but she can speak well so that that's you know that's not kind of, but i'm looking for people who have more of like significant disabilities at meta we had one we had someone who had mild hard of hearing and Let me go back. My point is, it's a great discussion for everyone to know, like, how can we have this? this, We just want to throw this idea out here. You know, what would the impact would be to see a disabled leader having, you know, more presentations about people with disabilities? And I think that would affect more hiring and less than, you know, oh, we'd have to we wouldn't have to fight for access and accommodations as much if we had those people. So I think this is something we could really go into. And I could really we could talk a lot about it.
7: Excellent, thanks, Brennan. Uh, Michael. Uh,
4: Before I answer that question, I just wanted to add one more thing and I should have mentioned it for the previous question about uh, deaf-blind having them on the panel. One thing I noticed when I run a Zoom meeting, one of my good friends, um, they have Usher's syndrome Uh, And as we know, you know, blindness as a deafness is is a gambit of how much sight you have. Uh, They always as a manager, I would always say, you know, Tim wants to speak. We'd always call the people so then they would know who to look for. So you'd always wanna mention someone because in Zoom, there's so many different little boxes. You don't know who's always talking that gives a person time to answer and a person be able to watch who's talking. And, and that way the interpreter also knows. So, and and sometimes usher, people with usher symbols, they have to look, people who have limited sight, they have to look for who's talking. And same with the deaf people, if someone's signing, it's a little bit different if they're all signing, but that was for the other question. Now with this question, I have to admit, one thing I think of today, there's more and more companies out there that are familiar or aware of deaf and other disabilities. There's a lot of PR that's happening, a lot of movies and TVs and and about disabilities. And with that, that's great. But one thing, and I'm going to specifically talk about being deaf here. Many deaf people ha- were deprived of language growing up, to a different degree. And I'm not speaking of those maybe who are hearing and become deaf later in life. I'm speaking of people who were born deaf and they've never heard any sound. Um, they're always they were language deprived, and they should be giving uh, questions like in advance in in of an interview and I think I've mentioned this before to actually have time to process the question and look and know at the interpreter because again, the interpreter is going to translate the question from the speaker to the language. Now the interpreter has that process where they have to translate that from English to ASL. And so, and then I have to translate that back to what the interpreter is trying to say and that takes up a lot of time and it's exhausting on our brains too.
7: That's great. Thanks, Michael. Uh, go ahead, Albert.
6: Yeah, uh, I think that um, if we are going to talk about the challenges of disabled people attaining leadership positions, um, I think we need to definitely address the um, uh, the issues after getting hired, right? Like uh, I know that there's a lot of ongoing effort in uh, HR field to hire more you know, diversity, neurodivergent uh, candidates and uh, people with disabilities. But um, if you don't, but after hiring, there doesn't seem to have much attention uh, going into setting people who are hired up for success, right? Um, and if we don't, uh, if, we, if we are just hiring for the number, uh i I think that's not a true inclusion and I think that's more like a just a show right just to show and um so uh I think if you want to talk about like the challenges of how can we make how can you help uh disabled people attain the leadership positions then we need to definitely address how do we set them up for success how do we set employees with disabilities up for success um also i think i am like just the imagining um Imagining myself like um, having a a disabled person in the leadership position would definitely help me sell digital accessibility much better, like much more easy, uh, much easier for me. Because a lot of my work as a digital accessibility consultant is um, there's a only. 10% 10% of technical work, I, I personally feel, and 90% is more about navigating the politics and navigating and being able to sell, you know, digital accessibility and, and, and that we need to think about inclusive design. We need to think about accessibility when we are, uh, thinking about uh, building a product, digital product. So, um, and sometimes it's very hard to sell because, uh, it's hard to, uh, because the leadership doesn't ha- doesn't really, it cannot empathize with the actual experience and struggles, right? And I think putting uh, people with disabilities in the leadership position will definitely help uh, companies to uh, move forward and and build a culture that they want to build, right? If they have a diversity inclusion mission or values in their company statement and want to build an inclusive uh, uh, work environment. So yeah, like personally, I think that um, it would definitely help me do my job better. So and I'd love to talk about this topic more.
7: That's great. Thanks, Albert. Uh, Brendan, you wanted to add something.
4: Yeah, just the last little comment there. I don't want to. I know we have a bunch more, but I thank you for breaking that up, Albert. And that's right. For example, what do you do after you're hired? That's been my you know problem for a couple of years now. It's like, okay, great. Then they just move on to different companies, and you have you know different companies and different. They don't they don't provide. You know, I'm a great worker, but they don't provide access. It's like, oh, good boy, put you in the corner. And it's like, no, I want to do work. I want to improve. I want to keep going. And then. Again, I worked at Meta and I got promoted. It was the first time there. And, uh, you know, I was there for a few years. And, but unfortunately, they had some, some, some other things happen and I didn't get to stay. So I think, would it help accessibility? Yes because the more you see people with disabilities and the more you recognize it and that becomes the standard whether it's at a lecture or presentation or or whatever but if the leader like has an interpreter has something then it's more visible and more noticeable and and michael great thanks to tim
7: oh yeah go ahead michael
4: thank you i just wanted to add to what albert said too because i it's, it's. I have a sudden funny story to share. Uh, my girlfriend works oh, why, in retail. I'll we'll just say that. And they got an interpreter. And they had the interpreter there every day, uh, 40 hours a week. And then one day, the manager decided to cancel the interpreter service. Just completely remove it. And their rationale for this uh Someone asked for help, so I tried to help explain. The rationale for canceling the interpreter was there wasn't enough deaf people coming to that place. But they forgot that the interpreter was for hearing people who are coming to the store to communicate with their deaf employer or deaf employee. It wasn't for the deaf community to come, but it was for the human, hearing community to talk to the deaf people. So it was a kind of reverse and making the manager understand that, but a reverse idea that interpreters are for hearing people to understand deaf sign language.
7: Thanks, Michael. This is a great topic. Uh, you know, we last, uh, I think it was last week, we talked about employment um, issues related to people with disabilities and you know this goes hand in hand. Once we get folks with disabilities employed, uh, you know how do we get them in positions of leadership? How do we get them in in positions they're more qualified and and should be in, as opposed to low level basic positions? Uh, there's another topic here that uh, uh, you know might might fit into this about uh, underpay. There are still laws in this country that allow people with disabilities to be paid less than minimum wage. And, you know, those, there's a, a multitude of groups working on, on fighting those and getting those changed, but, uh, but they're still in place. So, um, you know, so a, a lot of topics that I think we could discuss around employing people with disabilities and, and of course, all the access requirements or accommodations, Uh just the story Michael just told, uh, you know, this person needed an interpreter and it's like, uh, eh, you know what, it, we, we don't need enough. And that would be like saying, it's like, you know, we've got all this stuff to move around the warehouse. Um, but let's go ahead and cancel that forklift because they don't need it. And now you got people coming in trying to carry 500-pound pallets around because we just felt like we didn't need the forklift. That's their access requirement. The interpreter is another person's access requirement. Uh, you know, don't, don't leave these things out. Uh, we got to make sure that we we allow people to have the access they need to, to work. Okay, let's... Uh, Um, Make a note of that one, and uh, let's go on to the next topic, Mitchell.
1: Next one in from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. For a Saturday topic idea, bring on someone from AssistiveWare to discuss ProloQ. And John?
3: Uh, Yeah, ProloQ is an app that allows for people who are nonverbal to communicate or just different types of um, communication between verbal and nonverbal people. It's basically a grid of images, and you click on the image you want to piece together sentences. My two boys both have autism and one of them is nearly nonverbal. And it was invaluable for us to have that tool when he was age five to seven or so. That's great. Thanks, John. And, um, for those that are not familiar with the app, I would
7: encourage you to go to assistive website. They have a great, uh, list of kind of stories and case studies and success stories on people that use their products and, and, um uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of encouragement to see what's possible in just amazing stories out there. Uh, there's a young lady named Jordan Zimmerman. I think we've mentioned her name in prior episodes, but uh, Jordan is a, a user of assistive wear products. And there's a movie about her called "It's Not About Me." Um, that kind of shows her life and and how she uses uh aac alternative communication products and devices uh, to get through her life so i think this is a great topic john and and um would be wonderful to bring someone on to talk about the solutions and even uh you know someone that uses one of those devices to uh, to interact with us so we can ask questions on how they use it throughout the day and um you know what their needs are and and when they, so, thanks for bringing that up, John. I, I think this would be a great, uh, a great topic for sure. And we'll uh, we'll make a note of that one and get someone, both from the company and a user, on, uh, so we can we can learn more about that. Okay, Mitchell, let's go to the next topic.
1: Okay, next one. Brendan Gilbert from Fort Worth, Texas, uh, here on our panel, uh, asks: Should we discuss challenges in the workplace, offices, etc., with physical accessibility too?
7: All right, and Brendan, since you uh, since you brought that one up, let's um, let me hear your thoughts on this. I want to hear your thoughts on the topic.
5: Sure, sure. Yeah, as far as a deaf person, you know, for as a deaf person, I would say, um, as far as accessibility goes, getting into physical structures like buildings, um, there are some good things and some bad things to note. Um, you know, you you would, you think things like cameras, right. For accessibility, it's very frustrating. I was at work, uh, at a data center, very high security location. And so I'm like, I can't hear, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a security camera and I'm like, I can't hear. And they're trying to talk to me through a security camera as a deaf person. That's not accessible. Right. Um, and an alternative solution would be something where the deaf person, um, you know, like there's different people that, you know, access that building, right? So need, it needs to be accessible for everyone, um, for physical structures like that. And then another thing for deaf-blind people or blind people, how would they access that? How would they navigate um, p- putting in an access code or something like that? So lots of different barriers for disabled people. Um, another thing would be if, let's say, um, if a person doesn't understand, you know, we- wheelchair, wheelchair accessibility or... Um, You know, like a kid's gym, like gymnastics, going to gymnastics. Um, If there's special events or there's lots of people and, you know, kids are excited and there's an audience and they're watching. My mother-in-law has a wheelchair. She uses a wheelchair. She has MS. And so, um, you know, if hopefully it's not too far. We go to a location like that um, because she does use a wheelchair. And so if there's a raised platform, um, she doesn't have access to that, you know. And so everyone should have access to seeing the event. But that's a barrier for her where she can't. And so, you know, it becomes an issue where we have to physically, you know, remove her from her chair. And then it's, you know people are watching. So it, it it becomes a real barrier. Those physical barriers can be a real problem for everyone. Go ahead, Albert.
6: Yeah, um, I think that this is a definitely a topic that we should include in the discussion that we uh, the question that we uh, t- mentioned before Brandon mentioned. Um, and I wanted to mention that mentioned why it's important to talk about this because um if we don't, the re, the reason is that it's very hard for you to design Barbie doll uh, when you have the entire leadership team only male, right? Like a, a design and create a good product, right? Um, so like, uh, that's why it's important. Um, uh, you know, in order, there are only, there's only so much that we can, Teach about the empathy, right? Through textbook. Um, there's a, a lot more that comes from the lived experience, right? And, um, and, and there's the insight is very different. Um, and, and let me mention why it's also important. Employee accessibility is very, very important. And that includes not just not just the um, physical uh, accessibility of the building, but also the software that employees use, right? I, are are people with disabilities able to uh, uh, employees with disabilities able to access the software? Because nowadays, all the a lot of the jobs require you know computer work as well, right? Um, and that's why for example microsoft a lot of large tech companies like microsoft um they don't uh buy they don't purchase uh enterprise software if they are not accessible right um and also government for for if you want to work with any government or if you want to sell your product to government federal government or any uh they don't they don't buy they require you to um uh uh do accessibility testing for for and know where you are in terms of accessibility status of your product. Um so you need to make them accessible and the the really important thing is that how are am I gonna make an accessible product when I don't even know like what what the leave the experience of employees with disability is right so um that's why uh, I think this is important, uh, including physical accessibility as well as digital accessibility, um, and 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 we need to ha- uh, talk more about uh, including uh, employees with disabilities in 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 the uh, workplace, and and um, you know it's just just when there are when there are more employees with disabilities in the office going through a a challenges day by day, accessing the workplace, then you, you are able to recognize and detect what the problems are and make it better, right? So, um, and, and by doing that, you you make your uh, workplace uh, uh, more accessible too, right? Uh, if there's no one who's speaking up about the problem, you know, it, there's, no, uh, there's no improvement. So, um, yeah.
7: Great. Thanks,
6: Albert. Laura?
0: Yeah, um, we could actually pull this one apart into several different topics. Um, we talked to her a little bit earlier. I know when Danny and Vaughn were on, they talked a little bit about um, airlines and just, you know, people travel for work and how how difficult that can be. Um, and then the, just the basics of what the requirements on a physical space are. So we've got a a couple possibly a couple different ways we could take this one. Um, breaking down the basics as well as those higher level lived experience discussions. Let's
7: go over to Brendan. Brendan?
5: Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of different things we can unpack in that topic. Um, and I think that there's a much broader, deeper discussion about that software specific and also physical space. Um, software can be its own thing, right? There's a lot to talk about there. And physical environment as well. Things like, like you said, air travel for work. I've had experience with that. You know, people have talked about their experience with broken equipment, very narrow spaces. You know, how do you, how do people with disabilities use the bathroom when they're on a flight? So uh, I think there's lots to talk about there. Um, Restaurant too. We need to talk about restaurant accessibility. Um, You know, in the office, I've noticed that Um, it's not as accessible for people in wheelchairs. Um, a lot of times they're very small spaces. And so how do you navigate that small space, um, to be independent for those types of activities? So lots to talk about there.
1: Thanks, Brennan. All right, let's go over to the next topic, Mitchell. From John Snyder in Reno, Nevada, John asks: topic idea,
3: adaptive sports equipment. And John. I don't know if it fits super well into office hours, but the hospital I work for, I found out this week hosts every year an outdoor recreation adaptive sports uh, seminar where they focus on things like uh, adaptive equipment for mountain biking or rock climbing because we're up in the Lake Tahoe area. And I just thought it was some really interesting and cool gear, that kind of geeky stuff that a lot of people in the office hours community do like. I'm just curious if other people would be interested in something like that. I love that. Thanks, John. Um, Laura, go ahead and comment.
0: What you guys don't know is I almost went into adaptive physical education. Um I my mat, my bachelor's degree is in exercise science and I almost instead of doing it with my BSK I almost ended up doing adaptive physical education K through 12 instead of um so I actually am relatively well acquainted with Dr. David Lorenzi, who has done a lot in this area. I might be able to reach out to him and see if he would be even willing to come in and have a talk with us.
7: That's great, thanks, Laura. I I definitely I agree. It would be a great topic, and I think it fits well. Uh, You know, a lot of the gear and and equipment itself might be a little hard to show in this format, but we could certainly, uh, you know, revert back to the old fashioned uh, keynote slides and, and, uh, you know, show some of this gear and show how it's used. And, and I think this would be a great topic and uh, probably something a lot of folks aren't aren't as aware of. I think a lot of people have probably seen images of, you know, the uh, Paralympics and, and uh, you know, things like that, but they may not realize all all that's available. So very
1: good. Thank you, John, for bringing that up. Uh, Mitchell, let's go ahead to the next topic. And it's Brendan Gilbert from Fort Worth, Texas, and here on our panel, should we discuss various future tech being worked on and do presentations on them, plus a quick Q&A? Example, VSL Labs, English to ASL Avatar, or PS5 Accessibility Joystick. All right, go ahead, Albert.
6: Uh, I love this topic um, because I'm I'm a tech guru, um, and I dig in, to different uh new technologies all the time. And uh I'd love to talk about metaverse. Apple Vision Pro is coming, right? Um I'd love to talk about the accessibility of the uh AR VR, um, as well as you know, including artificial intelligence like ChatGPT. Um, because if you think about it, uh there the statistics show that that um A lot of people with, uh, mental health, uh, challenges, they, uh, the first thing that they do when they are trying to, uh, find, find out about their, um, treatment is search online. Right. And uh, I do imagine, uh, soon, uh, all the searches will be, um, uh, paired with uh, AI, right, like ChatGPT, and if the ChatGPT is communicating a wrong medical information, for example, right, that is a huge problem. So um, you know things like this. I think I think it's really a good topic that we, sh- we we can talk about many different technologies, different new products, upcoming, and uh, share about well, what do we think the pro- uh, rising problems could be, and how can you prevent that. Or if there are already existing problems, how can we uh, fix that uh, as well? Um, And the impact and things like that. I I love this topic.
7: All right. uh, Go ahead, Brendan.
4: Yeah, Albert, I'm happy you love that topic. Uh, I think we would have a lot to discuss with. And like VRA, VR... And that's a huge topic because VR for deaf people right now, it's not accessible. You put it on your eyes and, and you can't hear anything. So that's very interesting. And, and other things too, physical adaptations. So when you talk about wheelchairs and everything. There's a lot of cool topics. And then we talk about augmented reality. A lot of people want that because again, we want to people as you know, with the hearing and we are able to hear noise and ever, but hopefully the better technology will be able to filter out sounds and everything a little bit more. Maybe you heard something and there's a topic I can join. And I want to, I want to be there. I want to be in there, but right now it's all focused on sound and stuff. And it's a hearing environment and I I can't be in there and I'm missing a lot of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's a sound wall. I'm getting, they're doing amazing things. They're doing amazing business, but I'm behind because it's not accessible. And chat GPT you know, that's the hot topic, AI. I think that will help many of us, many people with disabilities. And from my viewpoint, and Michael too brought this up, uh, people who are deaf have not had language, have been deprived from language for one reason or another. Um, and, but maybe they now with ChatGPT, they can write better and they can do English uh, that's more easily understandable to someone can help with writing everything and that's awesome that is such a great thing that we could have so there's a lot of discussion I think a lot of fun we can have as well
7: thanks Brendan and uh, Albert you wanted to chime back in on this one
6: yeah um, I think it's also this topic um, is important uh, not only for people with disabilities but also uh, safety of the children right uh, for example, I do know that uh, VR, the metaverse issue, um, there was a, there's a, like a space uh, created and people can network, right? Like people can chat and hang out and it, and all the images are avatars, right? But then um, imagine your child uh, putting on VR set and then joining that uh, community and networking. But, and then there's an, uh, some, some guy, uh you know through the avatar right like come and do a sexual harassment and that actually happened so it 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 actually became a an issue so uh as far as i know um uh i don't want to mention specific device and software but um they had to set a boundary for each avatar's distance for example right this is a um i think uh it applies to a lot of population, not just uh, people with disabilities. So um, I think uh, it's a great topic, again. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk about it.
1: Great. Thanks, Albert. Uh, Mitchell, let's go ahead to the next topic. From Talalik Lopez-Waterman, traveling in Macon, Georgia, I would request a second look at etiquette. Let's take a deep dive on the, worlds that we, the words that we use to lift up all people. How can we better learn to think outside of our own limited perspective? Great, uh, Laura.
0: Yes, um, thank you, Sarah, for this. And we need to, we need to look at how we're going to do that. But it might be helpful to slice it down one subject or set of subjects at a time: blind, deaf, person-first language all those different things. Um, we, we could probably spend several hours on that one topic alone.
7: I agree, Laura. And, uh, you know, as as we were learning and adapting to the new show, uh, you know, we, we didn't dive into that topic as deeply as we wanted to the, the first go around. It's definitely something we want to revisit. And I agree with Laura that, uh, you know, it would be great to have, you know, kind of, uh, disability etiquette for blind and low vision and disability e- etiquette for deaf and hard of hearing, you know, kind of break those down so we can really dive in and learn, uh, learn from those communities and, you know, learn the language and the uh, all of the topics that that will help us uh, help our friends and colleagues and coworkers. workers, uh, you know, moving forward so, uh Mitchell.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with what you just said, Tim, and what Laura said, and I uh, commend Talalik for ans- asking the question. Um, as a reader, uh, yes, I'm hearing, um, and I want to make sure that I do the best I can to make everybody feel the most comfortable as they can. And I have learned an amazing amount on the uh, past eight weeks or so that we've done this about etiquette and the proper way to uh, to reference folks uh, that have disabilities Uh, how to approach them, um, how to engage, and how to be just a regular person. To me, that's worth its weight in gold. Thanks, Mitchell. Brendan. Yeah,
4: I think it's worth mentioning. um, So... With etiquette in a situation in like an office meeting, and that's a would be something more we could expand on when you're talking about what you can learn from this is like where, like for us, for deaf people, where do you put the interpreter? And in person, you know, if, if you have a problem with a specific person and you maybe this person doesn't understand deaf and you have an interpreter there and, and you know, they'll look at the interpreter and they'll say, well, tell Brendan this and tell them this. And that's something we want to avoid and talk directly to the person. And you don't want that disability person, the person with a disability to feel like they're left out or feel like they're separated. You really wanna be able to be yourself and be in situations. And, and you don't want other people without disabilities to feel scared. You want them to come up to us. We're just regular people.
1: That's great. Thanks, Brennan. Uh, Mitchell, let's go ahead to the next topic. Robert Sibabadi from Poland asked topic for discussion. Different ways to stream to video players to allow audience to select what interpretation they want: sign language, simultaneous interpretation, captions, and/or translated captions.
7: This is great, Robert. I think this is a an awesome suggestion, and and to me, this fits the Office Hours uh, goals and culture. Right? This is what Office Hours is about: is how to find solutions to these to these issues, and uh, you know discover and uh and formulate, you know, and and test uh solutions for these topics. So I, I really hope this is something not only that we can discuss, but maybe we can even uh, you know, try on this show and uh, you know, and get some of these out there. But um but Brendan, go ahead and and add your comments to this.
4: Thank you. Uh you know, I've learned a lot too about event production from office hours. So just a lot of things that we can apply and and a lot of education and what we've discussed throughout has been really awesome. And I think it'd be great for everyone out there and and this kind of topic to see, you know, for big events or big meetings, how they could do this because some people just don't realize that uh, when we're talking about, you know, how to stream things in or having an interpreter there, you when you have an accessibility player Some, uh, you know, you only see a little bit or they'll use like a white screen and everything. And and the options are hard to use. And it's hard for people who are visual, uh, who have impairment with their vision. So it's uh, Google so far is pretty good. Considering a language too, having the language on there on the screen you can just to have it available for everyone to have it much as possible. So like I have an event next week, it's Monday and Tuesday, and I'm going to talk with people there about job seeking as, as a job seeker myself and my experience. And I talked a little bit about last week or excuse me, yesterday, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember, I did talk about someone. It was like, Oh, to think about interpreter. they say, okay, I'll help them. How do you get interpreter? How do you set it up? Cause we're, uh, using real stream, uh, OS, or SO. And so, how we have, you can do the little boxes where you have it, but they weren't sure how to have it first and how to switch them. So, there's a lot of education there. And I think if we can get that education out there, it would just improve everyone's life. It would be great for everyone.
7: Yeah. Thanks, Brendan. Okay, Mitchell, let's go ahead to the next topic.
1: Next topic coming in from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks navigating the US Social Security Administration and other support systems. All right, Laura.
0: Yes, I think this is a really, really good topic. Um, I don't know that we could do, we could cover everything. Again, that's one of those ones. I don't think we could cover everything in an hour, but um, maybe having somebody come in or find find the resources and uh, database those resources as, as best as possible for people.
7: Yeah, thanks, Laura. I agree with that. And uh, Albert?
6: Yeah, I love this topic because um, uh, uh, I I think that I I already know a lot of the challenges that I face when I try to access uh, government services. Um, And during the COVID, especially, a lot of the physical offices were closed and I had to, you had, you were forced to use the websites, you know, government websites to navigate and access the uh, 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 social services, but um, a lot of the websites were not accessible, right? Um, so that was a huge issue. And um, it, and I think this not only, again, applies to people with disabilities, but also, for example, um, right now I'm in South Korea and I realize that there's a, so much inaccessibility For uh, foreigners, right? Um, For foreigners, because I have only U.S. credit cards, right? And I cannot make any online transactions in South Korean website using U.S. credit card. Or any credit card outside of South Korea uh, issued by South Korean bank. Which is really... uh, which is really a surprise to me because, you know, when I think about South Korea, it's a very developed, you know, uh, high tech. But in terms of that financial system, it's a Galapagos, right? It's like a, uh, isolated. Um, and, and they say that the reason is because they want to prevent uh, the, the reason why I'm not able to have that, uh, access is because they, All the online transactions, they have to verify the identity of the person. And the way they verify is uh, through the bank account or uh, mobile phone number, Korean mobile phone number. So either you get a Korean phone or you have a Korean bank, right? To be able to make online transactions, things like this, right? Um, Not only this, but also immigration wise. Right, and I I do know that a lot of the um, a lot of the discussions often uh, focus on uh, the the region, the North American region, but um, also a lot of Americans traveling to Asia or different countries, and they want to work as an expat, or uh, they just want to travel as a tourist. You know, there's also a lot of uh, when when the foreigners are trying to access the government uh system uh f- such as immigration office um of different countries there's also accessibility issues right and and i felt i i have that uh with the us immigration office right um and not only immigration but also education wise and there's also conflict for example for schools in the united states international students are uh, not allowed to take uh more than um they are required all international students are required to take 12 units right per semester but uh what if i have a medical condition and i need i need the, to reduce the course load right like things like that but the, but things like this like there's just a lot of uh, uh challenges um so you know we can discuss for education only oh like what are the Uh, how do we navigate the education system Um, or we can also talk about immigration system um, or driver's license as well, right? Like how do we um, talk about accessibility uh, for that? Um, And yeah, I I love this topic and I think there's a lot to discuss.
3: Great. Thanks, Albert. Uh, Let's go over to John. I agree that this is an important topic and I think there will be two specific challenges that we'll need to overcome. The first of which is we're a global organization and the U.S. um, Social Security Administration is a national organization. Secondly, even within the U.S., many of the Social Security's offices integrate with or utilize third-party administrators for a lot of their different services, and that can vary wildly from state to state or even within the state. Just as one example, in the state of Nevada, if you're on Medicaid, um, you will have one of three different insurance plans, actually four now that I think about it, depending where you live, and navigating each one of those four different plans is a totally different experience. Great, John. Thanks. And Brendan?
5: As a deaf person, I would love to learn more about other countries and how they access um, those types of services. Uh, I, don't, I haven't traveled enough yet. I would like to. But I think that um, places like Asia, you know, I know that it's very, it would be very difficult to navigate um, to get help if I needed it. Um, also... Um, with Social Security, that's an issue in the U.S. as well. Um, like you said, different insurance companies, um, depending on where you're located. So I definitely agree that would be a challenge. So just my thought on
1: that. Thanks, Brendan. Okay, Mitchell, let's go ahead to the, the next topic. Laura Thompson from Beaumont, Texas, uh, suggests service dog versus emotional support animals.
7: Great, Laura, let's uh, let's hear for your thoughts on this.
0: Well, um, let's just kind of start with the idea that they are two different things. Emotional support animals do not have public access rights. Um, People understanding what those are, you know, what's the difference between an emotional support animal and a service dog, hearing dog, um, dog guide, guide dog is actually a registered trademark. Um, So just kind of and there's etiquette around those like I, I could sit here and tell both great stories and horror stories my my favorite horror story very quickly is that going through the TSA in one particular airport every time I took my guide through they would ask me to do something ridiculous with the dog one time it was can you take the dog's leash off and hold them by the harness alone um dog was going to slip out of that really fast out of the fact he was well trained because they thought there was metal. I'm like, it's a rigid harness. The entirety of the handle of the harness under the wrap leather is metal. And the the TSA, the TSA agents, I just about bugged out their head when I said that taking the the leather leash off that only the clip is metal is not going to fix our metal detector problem. Um, I've had them try to put me through the full body scanner with the dog and, and had a, uh, so, yeah, there's just a lot of different things about, and emotional support animals don't have to be public access trained. And it's such a, there's just so much misinformation out there about this entire subject.
7: Great. Thanks, Laura. And, and you know, you, you come back to travel again, right? Travel keeps coming up. And I, I think, um, you know, not only is this topic great, it just reinforces the need for,
1: to discuss travel and, and all that's involved with that. Uh, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with uh, what Laura was talking about. The gigantic difference between service dog and emotional support animals. Um, I've had a bad encounter with an emotional support animal. I would never touch a service dog or approach it. Unfortunately, I approached an emotional support dog, and it reflected the owner's uh, temperament exactly. Right. Thanks, Mitchell. All right, Mitchell, uh, let's go ahead to the next topic. Next topic from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada, suggesting, can there be a discussion one day about the novel interface in Apple's Vision Pro and how it might help people with a disability? Brendan?
5: I agree. I agree with that discussion um, and using that for, you know, future discussion about cool tech and how we make it accessible. I think that's a great idea. I agree. We should definitely talk about that.
7: Okay. And Albert, Uh,
6: we talk about accessibility issues of new technologies, but I'm also, uh, I think this question actually uh, mentions um, the importance of talking about how new technologies can also improve accessibility uh, uh, in general, right? So um, I'd love to discuss about that. Um, Thank you for the question.
1: Great. Thank you. And Mitchell, let's go ahead to the next topic. Robert Sababity from Poland uh, suggests would it be worth having some workshops for producers and after hours on using the main conferencing platforms, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, WebEx, etc. In Europe, I run workshops for interpreter associations to help build skills and awareness, sign and simultaneous.
7: Great. Yeah, thanks again, Robert uh, for another great idea. You know, as I think all of the platforms are improving over time. I also feel like all of these platforms uh, have room for improvement, right? There's, you know, especially in regards to access and disabilities and and languages, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, so, uh, great topic, Brendan. I want to hear your thoughts on this.
0: Sure.
5: As a person who uses, um, you know, this type of technology and still using today, absolutely. It's very um, good subject to discuss. Um, And really kind of, I think a lot of people kind of relate to that. And that's something we would want to talk about. As a deaf person, it's more difficult to access these types of platforms, obviously. So um, I think really, if we could talk about like Zoom, I think it's getting better. I think it really depends on your perspective, but for other people, Um, you have to figure out what's best for them and see what their perspectives are on what's the best way to approach it. So I agree. I think we
1: definitely should talk about that. Great. Thanks, Brendan. Uh, Mitchell, let's go ahead to the next topic. Michael Koffer in New York suggests if there is a sign language interpreter that's not up to par, I would inform the agency not to send me that interpreter. Uh, They would ask me reasons. Is that appropriate for them to ask? Brendan.
5: Um, so it really is kind of up to the person. I I think that, um, if, um, they're asking why, because they want to improve who they're selecting, that's a different thing. But at the same time, it could lead to other problems too. That's a good question. I think we can talk about that. Definitely. Um, I tend to not want to criticize the interpreter, um, you know, but, I think that, yeah, I mean, at the same time, they may want to ask why, because they want to know if they're trying to, if this is a good fit, because that interpreter that they selected may have not been a good fit for that particular situation. So I think it might be helpful to know that. So it really kind of depends.
7: Thanks, Brendan. Michael?
5: Okay, so yeah, obviously that was my question. It's my favorite question. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I wrote it, obviously, (laughs) Um, but... You know, I work with interpreters every day, right? Every day. And so um, if you look at it from a different perspective, and and that's kind of of what I want to talk about, like from an agency perspective, there's lots of different things to consider when hiring an interpreter. For example, for bilingual agencies that handle lots and lots of different languages, not just sign language interpreters, right? So they may handle lots of different languages and they like make a lot of money doing that. um, From... They're just, you know, providing interpreting services uh, and it's expensive. And so let's say, for example, I can't remember exactly. I want to say maybe it was like 50 to 100 different hours, hundred fifty to 100 hours minimum, um, that aside. But if we're talking about bilingual agencies that provide multiple language services, Spanish, French, um, Korean, lots of different languages. Um, so there's always a screening process. And let's say, for example, if I'm speaking, if a person's speaking Spanish and the interpreters translating then, and maybe they're not a good linguistic fit, obviously it's, I mean, it wouldn't be a fit. Um, they're not skilled enough. Um, so that we would have to go through lots of different interpreters, but for when agencies are hiring interpreters, bilingual agencies are hiring interpreters, I'm sorry, I should say that, um, or ASL sign language interpreters, there's no real way for them to screen the interpreters. Oh, I see that your credentialed as an interpreter you used, you know, American sign language. Okay. You're certified. Okay. Sounds good. And then they're hired right? So there's no way for them to screen those interpreters. Certification is gen- generally through registry of interpreters for the deaf RID registration. And um, you can become certified if you take an exam, but that's a minimally skilled interpreter, right? That's That, that means they meet the minimal requirements to be a sign language interpreter. So um, there are two different i guess skills that sign language interpreters are required to have first is they have to be able to sign see sign language and then translate it into spoken english right the translation so oftentimes the interpreter for whatever reason if it's a good interpreter or maybe not an appropriately behaved interpreter will let the agency know you know i really am not interested in working with this interpreter again um, and they'll ask me, well, why is that? And so I always say, um, well, why do I need to explain my reasoning? I just, I don't want to work with that interpreter. Again, it's my right to decline that interpreter. Um, they should trust my opinion on that, uh, or give me a form to fill out and let me give my feedback. You know, I don't want to have to say all of that because then if I'm going through lots of different agencies and lots of different interpreters can be, become problematic. So, um, that's just my two cents on that. I won't go on and on, but some thoughts on that
3: great thanks michael uh john you wanted to comment on this as well I, i think as a topic how to have difficult conversations around accessibility would be a great topic idea excellent yeah great way to put that all right mitchell let's go to the next topic
1: and it's paul wallace austin texas asking will live speech using personal voice on mac os sonoma work in a zoom meeting for a person who no longer no longer has their voice but has preserved their former voice in personal
3: voice. All right, John. That's a super specific way to approach this topic. I would go more general. How do you use live speech in creative ways? Great, good. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of,
7: you know, current and uh, approaching tech topics that have come up that sound like uh, sound like they would be great to cover. So Mitchell, let's go to the next topic.
1: Albert Kim Los Angeles asking competition among minority groups and intersectionality and let's go to Albert Kim
6: Yeah uh basically the question that i'm trying to uh, discuss is like what are some of the biases that we might have even though i know that we we uh say we advocate for disability inclusion but i also know at the same time um you know there's intersectionality and there's many issues to uh diversity inclusion not just accessibility are we aware of lgbtq for example or are we aware of or what are do i have maybe biases towards certain other minority groups you know i i'd love to talk about that uh, topic because oftentimes i see that there's a competition between my different minority groups and i i don't think that's a really a, a a good thing um so you know discussing about that also um asking uh, uh how do we accommodate conflicting needs for example um if uh, if a low vision uh attendee uh, needs, needs a brighter uh, screen but you know uh, somebody with photo uh, sensitive epilepsy uh you know uh, it'll trigger their um trigger their uh, uh diagnosis right so uh when there's a brighter uh, light so um, how do we, in that case, how do you accommodate better? Uh, so I think I just want to talk about different like uh, intersectionalities.
7: Thanks, Albert. And um, uh, there's a few more questions that we're gonna leave for for future conversations, just for the sake of time, but we appreciate all the questions. As always, the producers um, just really keep our show engaging and uh, and moving forward, so we appreciate that. Uh, we want to thank our interpreters today uh you know that that keeps the show uh, our deaf panelists and and our audience members that uh that are relying on sign language which really appreciate you being here um, thanks to the crew for keeping this show moving along and uh, uh you know keeping us looking great and the sh- the show sounding great. Uh, we just always appreciate uh, everyone that's involved with the show. It's just, it's such a great, um, great audience, great crew, great producers. And um, uh, just a little bit of trivia for uh, the the uh, miles we've traveled today through our question session, uh, 75,475 miles, uh, 121,000, over 121,000 kilometers. So um, a lot of distance and we just, we always, um, I uh, appreciate your time joining us today. Please join us next Saturday uh, as we carry on the accessibility topic for for at least one more week and uh we'll kind of let you know some of the plans and of course join office hours throughout the week uh and uh, you know keep keep in contact with all the topics that are going on there. So thank you very much everybody.